Thank you, Renee. Um, let's get going. The passage that we just read, Romans 3, at least most of it, keep it open in front of you. We'll be referring to it throughout the talk. Um, the title of today's sermon is Sit Down, Shut Up and Listen. Now, I don't normally announce the title of the sermon. Normally, I don't even really name the sermon, but you know, it always comes across as a bit pretentious and American. So it's like, oh, to, today's uh, sermon is entitled Hearts Ablaze for the Glory of God. You know, if you want to cha- channel John Piper a bit, you might have like, a glorious passion for the majesty of God. Uh, but today's title was too good not to let out of the bag at the outset. Sit down, shut up, and listen. And the reason it's called that is because that's exactly what today's passage tells us to do. Now, for the last week, the last two weeks, if you've been here with us, ever since we started in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul has been building one massive argument. He's been convincing us of our need for the gospel. And he has been systematically backing us into a corner. Every time we think that we can find a way out of our need, he tells us, no, that doesn't work, you have the need. And today what he does is he cinches the argument and he closes everything down. And he tells us three things. First of all, he tells us to sit down. You no longer have any more objections. He tells us, second, to shut up. You no longer have any defense. There's no place to run, no place to hide. All there is is you before a wrathful and angry God, and he will judge you, and you will be found wanting. And it's in that moment when you finally realize how desperate your situation is, there is no way out. The axe is hanging above your head and it's about to fall and strike that he tells you third to stop and listen. So no extended intro today. We're going to jump straight in. Point number one should be on your outlines there. EOC, sit down. Verses one to eight. What does Paul do? Well, Paul deals with what I think is the most common objection to Christianity. And that's God's judgment. It's because God's judgment offends us and it confuses us. Uh, So what do you do when you find something that offends you or confuses you? Well, you try to do away with it, don't you? Um, You try to explain a reason why it doesn't make sense and should be put aside. And what we do is we object. What do we say? We say something like this. Well, God is unfair. God is unfair that he judges me. I'm a good person. How does God respond? He tells us all to sit yourself down. But before we get to that point, we actually need to see the build-up and how Paul gets there. Because in verse 1, Paul starts in a very different place. What does he ask? He says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? The reason he asks this question is because of everything that he has just said in chapter 2. Now, if you recall from last week, chapter 2, verse 11, God shows no favoritism. You'll be judged on the basis of what you do. Now, to hear that would have been really shocking for a Jewish person. Because for Jewish people, their thinking went something like this. I have the law. And the law marks me out as somebody who is special before God, who has a privileged position before God. And so as far as they were concerned, when they heard about God's judgment, they're thinking the Gentiles. They're thinking everybody who by definition isn't a Jew, it's them that are going to burn. It's them that are going to get judged. I'm a Jew. I'm one of God's special people. I have the law. I know how to please God. Therefore, I am safe. And so what Paul has been doing ever since chapter 1 is that he has been slowly dismantling the false confidence of the Jews. 
He says there in chapter 2, verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and, and boast in God and, and, and all of these things which are true, but then he says, but if you go ahead and disobey the law, the thing that distinguishes you, then your Jewishness actually counts for nothing. You're circumcised, big deal. You've got the law, doesn't matter. And so when we hit chapter 3, verse 1, we're left asking a question. Then what the heck is the point of being a Jew? What was the purpose of the last 1,000 years of religious Jewish history? And Paul, he's not saying that it counts for nothing. In fact, he turns around in verse 2 and he says, well, actually, no, there is an advantage. In fact, much in every way. Every way. So there is still advantages to be had. And so he starts to list them. He says, first of all, uh, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Okay, cool. Second of all, There's no second of all. Where's, where's the second of all? Now, we've got two options at this point. Either Paul is a space cadet, and he's the sort of guy who just gets distracted by a butterfly and forgets what he was actually doing. Or he's shifting gear because he's come across something that's even more fundamental that needs to be addressed. And Paul isn't a space cadet. He's addressing something important. And that is the righteousness of God. Now, if you look there at verse 3, we see the problem. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Basically, what he's saying is, yeah, sure, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God, but they disobeyed them. So that naturally raises the question for those listening to Paul describe this. Does that mean that because the Jews were faithless that God has failed to uphold his end of the bargain. He promised them salvation, after all, and now we're hearing that they disobeyed, so they're going to get judged. So isn't God being faithless? Isn't he being unrighteous? And Paul replies quite emphatically in verse 4, by no means. It's the strongest way you can say no in the Greek. That's how we translate it in English. What he says is that in verse 4, it means that God is proved to be true, while all of mankind... And not just the filthy pagan nations, but God's people, the Jews as well. Everyone in mankind is shown to be a liar. And this is where we get to the real objection here in verse 5. Listen to what it says. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? So here's the objection. It goes something like this. Hang on a minute. If my sin makes God's holiness and righteousness and faithfulness that much more apparent and shine that much more brightly, then why on earth is He punishing me? Because if the whole of the created order is intended to glorify God, something that I know from my Jewish scripture, then surely my sin, which magnifies God's glory, is a good thing. And so what right does God have to come along to me and punish me for doing something that is really up in His name? He shouldn't be judging me, that's unfair. That's unjust. And so what's at stake here for Paul as he addresses this objection is God's reputation, his righteousness. Is God being righteous when he judges people who are sinful? Now, let's be clear here. It's not that God needs to prove himself to us. He is God. We are not. He can do what he wants. He doesn't need to give us an answer. He doesn't answer any man. But what he does want to impress upon us as we look at this particular passage is that these verses say that he is right and you, the sinner, are not. 
and that is how it should be, and that is what we should agree to. So how does he tell us that? We'll have a look at the end of verse 5. It should be there in brackets, at least in the ESV translation. Paul is saying, I speak in a human way. What he's saying is, this is a human argument, a weak, puny human argument, one that is delivered with the proud confidence to God, the God of eternal wisdom, and whose ways are higher than our own, delivered by a petty sinner, one who has not considered their relative position to God. You can't just justify your sin by claiming it makes God look better. And you certainly can't use that fact as immunity from his judgment or that somehow God is being unfair. Your falsehood, yes, it does enhance God's glory. It does enhance his truthfulness. But verse 7, that's what that says. But then to go and ask, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Is to argue that your judgments are higher and wiser and more righteous than God's. It's a human argument and a sinful one. And it's the reason why Paul responds to those who think like this by saying in verse 8, their condemnation is just. So if we turn it on ourselves, if we think like that, we actually compound our error just like these Jewish objectors did. First, because we sinned against God, but then second, because we accused God of being unjust when He rightly punishes us for doing those sins. You see, the thing to get is that God is righteousness. And even though our rebellion shows that in starker relief, it doesn't change the fact that He will judge us. It doesn't change the fact that He will be right in doing so. And so Paul tells us to sit down. Our objection that God's judgment is unjust is groundless. It's not going to get us anywhere on judgment day might offend us, but it's no less true. He takes our objections and he knocks them off the table. He tells us to sit down. Now, second of all, he tells us in verses 9 to 20 to shut up. This is my favourite one. <laughs> it's the rudest. And really, this is where Paul's argument has been hitting the whole time, ever since chapter 1, verse 18. Because this section here, verses 9 to 20, it's not just another objection that Paul is seeking to knock down. This is actually where everything comes together. It's where he's been hitting the whole time. And so I want you to scan your eyes down to verse 19, because this is where we see the end point of the whole argument. We've been in this section of Paul's argument for the last three weeks, and finally we get to see where he was going the whole time. What does he say in verse 19? Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What Paul tells us is that God has been orchestrating events through his argument to show that all of mankind is speechless. He's trying to shut us up, and he's succeeding. Have you ever been in one of those fights? You know those fights, right, where you're trying to defend yourself. It's usually with your mum. Usually it's when you've done something wrong. And no matter what you say, the other person, your mum, has a comeback that is so obviously true that you're kind of just stunned, speechless. Um, and every way you turn... And you, you come up with something to say to her, there is an undeniable comeback that strips you of your conviction and of your confidence in your own position. And so basically at the end of it, you're just kind of left to kind of go, yeah, okay, you got me, mum. This is what's happening here. Except it's happening on a larger scale. Paul is telling us, you have nothing to say. Uh, and if you remember, this is actually what happened to Job in the Old Testament. I think this is the, the best example of this. Do you remember what happened to Job? Job... Um, suffered great injustices, one might say, 
Um, he certainly felt that way. Uh, and so he was complaining the whole time that God had been unfair to him. And God turns up to him after an extended time of grief and pain. And this is what God says to Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. And then he spends a chapter, a second chapter, completely slamming him. This is not true. This is not true. I am great. I am wise. I am powerful. I am God. I can do what I want. I am not answerable to you. And then finally, he allows Job to speak. And what does Job say? Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. But then God goes for a second chunk. And he goes again for one more chapter and a second chapter until finally he says, what are you going to say, Job? And Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. What does he do? He despises himself and repents in dust and ashes. And this is what Paul is doing to us. He, or God rather, through Paul, is systematically taking away every leg we have to stand on. Every reason, every defense, every excuse, every hope that you think that you will have when you come face to face with God. And he says you don't have it. You have nothing to say. So what does he say? Let's have a look there at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have charged already that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now Paul will listen, uh, give you a list of advantages of the Jews in Romans chapter 9. And there are advantages. We will get to them later on in the semester when we hit that chapter. But remember what he's driving at here. God's wrath has been revealed against all of mankind, Jew and Gentile alike. And what does he say? No one is accepted. His charge, all are under sin. Now, I don't know whether you... I mean, you, you would know. You know those lights, those UV lights that show the bacteria? Um, you know, they kind of pop up in movies and in, in crime shows like CSI. And they kind of show up all the things that are on your seat or on your dinner plate, and you're like, I can't believe I actually am eating off that, but you just never knew because you can't see it. Well, what Paul does now from verses 10 and onwards is he takes a light and he shines it over this room. And he wants us to see, as we look down upon ourselves on our arms, as we write with our hands, um, that there is nobody in this room that is not crawling with the taint of sin. You can imagine that, right? Like it's the creepiest thing in the world. Can you imagine just looking down at yourself now and instead of just seeing you know, normal skin, it just suddenly comes alive with these green things that are moving all over it? It's just kind of gross, right? And that's what Paul is doing to us, but on a deeper sense. And so let me ask you, when you turn your eyes inward and you examine your mind and your heart, can you see the crawling bacteria? Because if you can't, it's not because it's not there. You are sinful. It's because you don't have the right light. And the light Paul uses is the light of Scripture. And we see this in verses 10 to 18. Let me read to you what he says. Let the light expose you for what you are. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You are not the exception to the rule here. It covers you as well. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Notice the speaking language here. This kind of goes back to verses 3 and 4 of the chapter where every man and every woman is shown to be a liar and God the only one who speaks truth. Here it is, that description again. Then from verse 15, Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Can you see your sin yet? I think some of you might be able to, but there are probably some of you here today who are thinking like me, that there is a massive disconnect between this list and me. Because when I read this, I'm not thinking this is describing me. I mean, my throat isn't an open grave. I mean, sure, I've lied sometimes. I've done some bad things. But the sheer violence of this description, it just beggars belief. Like, I can think of people who fit this description. Um, one of you goes to this church, there was a couple that was murdered at a church in Janali a couple of weeks ago. The guy who did that, that's the guy on this list. That's not me. I'm not that bad. And I've done some good things as well. Now, I think on one level, that's a pretty fair objection. Because it's not as if everybody is a walking Hitler or the Satan incarnate. But listen to what Paul says here in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now what does he mean by that, under the law? Well, those who are under the law are the Jews. And what it is, the law is, it's saying to them. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So what is it saying? Well, contextually, it's verses 10 to 18, because they're all quotes from the Jewish Old Testament, our Old Testament as well. Um... And they're taken from the Psalms, they're taken from Isaiah. And here's what's interesting about those quotes. If you went and looked up each one of them in their original context, each one of them, with the possible exception of Isaiah, is about the wicked. Now, quick history lesson about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Now, the righteous were the people of God. They were the ones who did the right things, the ones who were in right standing with God. And the wicked were all the nations. So you had the Jews over one side, God's chosen people, and then everyone else, the nations, and they were classed as wicked. They were the ones who didn't know God. They were the ones that God hadn't revealed himself to. They were the ones that didn't have God's life-giving law. So you see what's happened here, right? You've got your Jews and your Gentiles. Now, what's incredible is that all of these quotations are about the wicked, the Gentiles, but then Paul says in verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And so it's speaking to the Jews. And so he basically takes the most morally upright group of people in society, and he says, this description, it's you. And so our objection, well, it's actually the same objection as the Jews. It loses traction. This doesn't describe me. Well, actually, he says, no, it describes the most morally upright group of people in existence. And so it describes you as well. You may not have literally shed blood, but the Bible says that you and I, in our natural dispositions, are God-haters. We do not fear Him. Instead, what we've done is we've turned away from Him. The things we say are death. 
the things we do, the places we walk, leave ruin and misery in our wake. And so we stand condemned. These words are not just reserved for the gang member or the drug addict or the atheist. Therefore, the community servant, the soccer mum, the little old lady who prepares morning tea at church every week. They're for all mankind. And so, verse 19, so that, the reason for this is that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to the righteous judgment of God. You were told to shut up. You have nothing left to say. And I want you to feel the weight of that predicament. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. You've been backed into a corner. And that should terrify you. Because when somebody backs you into a corner, they're out to get you. They want to kill you. Now, when I was still living with my parents, we found a rat under my bed. Now, now is not the time to be talking about Matt's personal hygiene habits. But the more pressing concern here was the rat. Dad armed himself with a shovel, I got the golf club, and we systematically shut off sections of the house until the rat had nowhere to run. And we were out for blood, and we got it. Now that rat just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. It wasn't nesting in my room, it wasn't. It just got itself trapped in the house, and yet its accidental trespass led to its death. How much more are you and I, because of our intentional trespasses against God, deserving of death? In Romans 1, 18 to 3, verse 20, God has herded us like rats. Every avenue of escape we think we find is shut off for us. And the more trapped we find ourselves, the more panic sets in. We run and we turn and we cast about ourselves looking for something, anything to shield us from the, God, the wrath of God until we find ourselves back in that corner and the shovel is hanging above our heads and so we close our eyes waiting for the blow to fall. But it doesn't. Instead of thumping us, God does something that is unexpected. He tells us to listen in verses 21 to 26. What does he say? Verse 21, But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's two little words at the beginning of verse 21, but now. Those two words represent the most significant turning point in all of human history. They are the most joyous news, because what did we need? We needed righteousness. And here, God offers it to us through faith in His Son. And this is where Paul's argument has been heading the whole time. Because by rights, God could have stopped at verse 20. We're all shut up, we're all accountable to God, we're all sunk. And if He'd done that, He would have remained righteous. But He had a greater and deeper plan than just telling us to sit down and shut up. Having taken us to the depths of hopelessness, having backed us into the corner and made us realize that there is nothing in ourselves that can fix this problem, he beckons us to look beyond ourselves to his open offer of rescue. And so the great terror of God's judgment becomes the great joy of God's salvation. 
So I want to spend the rest of our time sitting in these verses and gain a better appreciation of just what it is that God gives us when he reveals his righteousness to us in the gospel. So what I want to do is I want to introduce a concept to you called justification. And then I want to point out three things about justification from this passage that I think that we need to know. So first of all, the concept. Ever since week one of the Bible talks, I've been making it very clear that the heart of the gospel message is about our need for righteousness and God supplying that need by giving us his own righteousness. But what I haven't done up until now is tell you that there is a word for that. And that word is justification. Now, when we talk about justification, you've got to think law court. It's a legal term. You try to justify yourself and prove your innocence. Well, what is it? Well, here, here is the definition. Justification is the declaration of innocence. When God justifies us, what he's doing is declaring us righteous. Our justifications, then, is the means by which we are saved. Because at the moment we are declared innocent, we no longer have any charges that we need to answer for. Nothing sticks. And so if you want to escape the judgment of God, then you need to be justified. Now I want to suggest then that there are three things about justification that we need to know. The first is the source of justification. The source of justification is God's grace. We see this in verse 24. We are justified by His grace as a gift. Let's pick it up halfway through verse 22. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Notice there, no distinction. Jew, Gentile, murderous ratbag, good community citizen, every single one has fallen short of the glory of God. Notice too there in verse 25, God put forth Jesus as a propitiation. Notice his initiative. We didn't do this, God did. And I want to be very clear on this point. God justifies us. We in no way play a part in that saving initiative. You, don't, you, you can't contribute to your justification. It's not God helps us help ourselves. It's not God and us team up to justify us. It's not that God justifies us initially and then we have to stay in His good graces through the Eucharist or penance or confession or whatever it is. It is all of God, none of us. It is a gift. We don't contribute to it. Not at the point we're saved, not even after as we continue in salvation. In fact, even if we wanted to contribute to it, we couldn't. It's not within our power. We have all sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. Justification, it says here in verse 24, comes to us as a gift. And I think this is so important for those of us who are involved in the Catholic Church, because the whole system in the Catholic Church is set up so that salvation is synergistic. And what I mean by that is that God and man work together, synergy, to bring about man's justification. And this is straight from the Council of Trent, which is the official teaching of the Church, it teaches that God's grace predisposes people, and I quote, to convert themselves to their own justification by freely assenting to and cooperating with that grace. And what I want to point out to you is that, with respect, that is wrong. There can be no cooperation where there is a gift, no contribution. 
We actually see this in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 to 9. What does it say? It says, For grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, God justifies us by His grace as a gift. Second, having looked at the source of justification, we can now look at the grounds for justification. And the grounds of justification is Jesus' propitiation. We see that in verse 25. Our justification is made possible by the propitiation of Jesus' blood. Now, propitiation is not a common word. Not only is it hard to say, it's even harder to define. And unless you've grown up in a Christian household and been fed a steady diet of Colin Buchanan, you probably don't know what it means. Propitiation is a relational word. And it means to appease or to pacify somebody who is angry. And if you remember, this is the big issue in Romans. Chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind. We have an anger problem. But it's not our anger. It's God's anger. And so long as that anger remains, no relationship can be restored. And we know that from our own experience, don't we? Because if somebody is angry with you, the relationship doesn't continue unless you deal with that anger. Now, normally in pagan religions or in relational fallout with your boyfriend or girlfriend, it's the person who does the wrong thing that seeks to pacify the anger of the other person. You do it by saying sorry, by buying flowers. In the case of other religions, it's by rituals or sacrifice. But as we've already seen from Romans, the one thing that God makes abundantly clear to all of us is that that is a human fiction. We can't do it. We cannot deal with the anger problem. And because we can't propitiate God's anger, God, in His grace as a gift, He propitiates Himself. And we see that in verse 24, that the redemption that is in Jesus Christ is, verse 25, affected by God putting Him forward as a propitiation by His blood. Now, blood sacrifice seems pretty full on, doesn't it? And if you're thinking, gee, God, calm your farm, then you wouldn't be the first. One of the most frequent things I hear people say in evangelistic conversations is, why couldn't God just forgive us? And the answer I give them is that then there wouldn't be any justice. You see, a price has to be paid. And if that price isn't paid, then what God would be is unjust. But of course that leaves us with a problem, because if God decides to justify us and declare us sinners as righteous, then the only way that He can do that and remain just, rather than being unrighteous and unjust, is to find somebody else to pay that price on our behalf. And that's what He does when He offers Himself in the person of Jesus. So that, verse 26, He shows that He is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Now this is how John Stott puts it uh, in his wonderful book, The Cross of Christ, which I've put a reference there in your outlines. I've relied a lot on him for this section. Well worth the read. It's a big read, but a good one. This is what he says. He says, When God justifies sinners, He is not declaring bad people to be good, or saying that they are not sinners after all. We're not pretending that we're not sinful. But what God is doing, He is pronouncing them legally righteous, free from any liability to the broken law, because He Himself in His Son has borne the penalty of their law-breaking. You see, Jesus' propitiation allows God to justify us while He Himself remains just. 
And so that is the grounds of our justification. Third and finally, what this means um, is that we need the means of justification. How do we become justified? Well, we find out from the passage that the means of justification is faith. Verse 22, the gift of God's righteousness is received through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, we receive the propitiation by his blood by faith. Verse 26, God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now on Sunday, an alcoholic came to my church. He had a, he, he'd messed his life up, like something, something fierce. Like he's a guy in his 50s, he's in tears. Uh, he'd been drinking since he was 10. Virtually pushed away everybody that had ever been kind to him um, by his behaviour. He'd hit rock bottom. And I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with him. But the thing that he couldn't get past is that he himself couldn't fix his situation. And I kept saying to him, you need to call on God. And he'd agree, but then he'd keep slipping back into the I need to work harder language. But that isn't going to fix the problem, because what did verse 20 say? We didn't look at it before, but look at what verse 20 says. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, the way of works is not left open to us. Instead, what we need to do is throw ourselves on the mercy of God in faith, trusting that when God says he justifies us, he does. And so some of you may be thinking at this stage, well, hang on a minute, isn't that something that I have to do? Doesn't that make it a work if I have to put faith in God? That's something I do. Well, I would direct your attention again to Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9. What does it say? It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, the Bible understands faith to not be meritorious in any way. In fact, it's, it's described as the channel. It's described as the open hand that receives the gift. As Stott elsewhere says in his book, faith has absolutely no value in itself. Its value lies solely in its object. Catch that? Faith's value lies solely in its object. And don't miss that. What is the object of our faith in Romans 3? Well, it's Jesus Christ. And what Paul says here is that if you want to be justified, if you want to claim the righteousness of God for yourself and so be saved, then all you need to do is place your faith in Jesus and it will be so. So the means of justification is faith. Now, I know we've been a bit longer than usual today. I know there's been a lot to take in. So let me finish. Um, I hope that you've seen that the gospel answers our need. My challenge to you as I finish is this. Will you sit down, shut up, and listen? Will you sit down and accept that the judgment of God is righteous? Will you shut up and accept that the judgment seat of God before it, you have nothing to say in your defense? And will you, in that sudden moment of realization that the shovel hangs above your head, will you listen to the joyous news of the gospel? Will you respond to God's open and gracious offer of salvation by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus? For it is only in Him that we can find justification and so be saved. So let me pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much that you backed us into the corner. But instead of letting the hammer fall, 
you did something wonderful and amazing and saved us where we could not by sacrificing yourself and providing the means through which you could justify us. Lord, we pray that we will remember that it was your doing and that we can only respond to you in faith if we had to claim that gift as our own. I ask that you will work in each one of our hearts, that we will hold firmly to this truth, and that we will all, therefore, remain to the last day where we receive your salvation completely and finally. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.